Okay, here you go, sir. Here's your cinnamon sonio. Thank you very much. Oh, you're welcome. Enjoy. All right. Hi there. Hi. How you doing? What can I get for you today? Uh, plain coffee, please. Okay, that'd be a dollar twenty-five. <laughs> That's funny. You come to a fancy coffee shop and you get a plain coffee. <laughs> that fancy stuff's all right, but then so is the plain stuff. All right, enjoy. <laughs> sir. Thanks. Enjoy. Excuse me. Um, there doesn't seem to be any other empty chairs. Do you mind if I sit here? Oh, no. Help yourself. <laughs> Thanks. So, what do you do? Oh, uh, I'm in politics. And you? Uh, public speaking. We're a lot alike then. My name's Jason, by the way. I do a little bit of public speaking myself. So, why do you come to this coffee shop? Making contacts? No, no. I mean, I like the coffee, but, you know, really, I just enjoy meeting people. It's amazing in a place like this how many different kinds of people that you meet. I mean, each one with unique backgrounds and beliefs. <laughs> That's cool. I think beliefs really define a person. I have a lot of friends who practice different religions. They're all nice people and well accomplished too. I have a friend who's a Christian. He goes to church out east. Nice guy. Nice family. Then I have a friend who's a Buddhist. We went to lunch yesterday. He's a very principled individual. <laughs> hey, I even have friends who are atheists and they're some of the most generous people I know. Wow. Christianity? Buddhism, atheism, which one is right? Right? Yeah, which one is true? Well, they all are. How can they all be true when they teach such different ideas? One of them has to be wrong. Not necessarily. I mean, who am I to say someone else is wrong? I think we should be tolerant of what other people believe. <laughs> yeah, but how do you resolve the beliefs between a, a Christian and, say, an atheist, for instance? <laughs> Easy. You don't put them in the same room. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but can you agree with both of them? Yes. And you don't think one of them is wrong? No, of course not. One of them believes in God. The other doesn't even think God exists. Which one is right? It doesn't matter. What do you believe? I believe my friends can believe what they want. Jason, what do you believe? Oh, I'm sorry. Um, would you excuse me? Uh, you haven't answered the question, Jason. I'm sorry. I need to go wash my hands. He was a Roman man in a Jewish world. He was a military man in a religious world. And if there was ever a guy who didn't want to be where he was, it was Pontius Pilate. But some of you know what Pilate's deal was. Some of you maybe have lived through it. It was, if you take this promotion that you don't want, you'll get the promotion that you do want. If you'll take this office in North Dakota, then the next job will be in Orlando. Or maybe that someone told you if you took the job in Wichita, the next job would be in Orlando. But he was in, that, he was in that assignment that he really didn't want. 
And he didn't like the people. He was, he was a military guy. He'd grown up in Rome. He'd grown up at the very seat of power. Rome ruled the world at that time. And he had been successful. You know, he had risen through the ranks of the military. He started getting stripes and medals and ribbons. And before long, he was at the top of his game. And somebody suggested his name to the emperor to be governor of this forsaken outpost called Judea. And Pilate was assigned. He had a job to do. He needed to do his job. His job basically consisted of collecting taxes, overseeing projects, commanding the military, and keeping the peace. If he could do those four things, he could take his next assignment and go to Rome and get back to where all, all the action was. Chances are that when Pilate showed up in Judea, he never realized, he never could comprehend that he would be called on in Judea to make the most important decision in the history of the world. It all started when they brought a man to him, a teacher from Pilate's perspective, a a strange man, a peculiar man. Pilate was not religious anyway, and his religion taught him that there were many gods, and the important thing about gods was to have celebrations and, you know, enjoy yourself and get drunk and get high, and whatever you did, you tipped your hat to whatever god was the god du jour. But here was a teacher, a teacher of monotheism, a a man who had gained a following, but somehow had gotten himself on the wrong side of the religious powers that were in Jerusalem. And Pilate clearly understood how easy that was because his tenure in Jerusalem had been shaky. He was a man who had strong military ideas, but at the same time he was ill-equipped to handle the stiff-necked Jewish people, the religious people, primarily the Pharisees that we talked about last week. There had been a couple of bad things that had happened for Pilate. He had brought some insignia, Roman insignia, into the palace. Jewish leaders, the the Pharisees, believed the second commandment that you did not make any graven image, and they interpreted Pilate's men's insignia as being a graven image, and they organized what we used to call in the 60s a sit-down strike outside the palace. And Pilate warned them that they better go, and they stayed there five days. Finally, he had enough, and he said, if you don't go... I'm going to cut your heads off. That worked in any other part of the world, but it didn't work in Judea because the Jewish men pulled their collars back and exposed their necks. They called Pilate's bluff and Pilate backed down. And from that point on, there was blood in the water. Jewish leaders knew how to push Pilate's buttons. So now they bring this man, Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, this teacher, this itinerant teacher for Pilate to judge. And they tell him, that this man is worthy of death. Pilate is in a political environment, a political situation. His integrity tells him one thing. His integrity tells him that Jesus is innocent. But on the other hand, the Jews are threatening him. And he could get back to Pilate's superiors. And if he got back to Pilate's superiors, he could be summoned to Rome. And it was a dicey time in Roman history. For any of you who are real history buffs, you will know that things were coming unglued with the administration of the Caesars at this time. And so Pilate was hoping that it would all go away. The Bible tells us what frames his decision. In Luke 23, verse 4, the Bible says, Then Pilate announced to the chief priest in the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. That was his integrity. He, he, he tried Jesus as he would try anyone, and he, he came to the conclusion that there was no basis for any charge. If you're a magistrate, If you're one who holds all the marbles and you try somebody and you see that they're innocent, what do you do? You let them go. 
But Pilate had the other side of this equation. In John 19, 7, the Bible says the Jewish leaders responded or, or replied, by our laws, he ought to die because he called himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was more frightened than ever. So there you have it. He has Jesus standing before him. His integrity says he's innocent. But by the same token, Pilate doesn't want to get in trouble with his superiors over some unimportant Jewish teacher. And therein lies his quandary. From that moment on, Pilate set his course to make a non-decision. Pilate has set his course to waffle, to find some sort of middle ground. And that is what he wants to do. He asks the question, what should I do with Jesus who is called the Messiah? These two men's lives have intersected. Jesus, Bethlehem born, promised for thousands of years, the Son of God, the Son of Man, stands before this Roman, this Roman general, this Roman uh, governor who did not want to be in Jerusalem, and he's caught on both horns of the dilemma, and he's asking himself, what am I going to do with Jesus? The reason I bring this sermon to you today is you have to ask that same question. What am I going to do with Jesus? He is too big to overlook. He's too important to make a non-decision on. And he's too vital for your decision to be fuzzy. Pilate said, what am I going to do with Jesus? From this point on, there are four things. I don't know if you want to call these problems or you can just call them, you know, issues that Pilate had in his mind. There are four things that govern Pilate's choice or non-choice. You know, he sizes this situation up and he says, I need to find somebody else who'll take responsibility. Because Pilate didn't want the responsibility. He, he didn't want the guilt of going against his integrity, but at the same time, he didn't want to be in trouble back with his bosses in Rome. So he, just, he thought to himself, if I can get somebody else to make this call, if I can avoid making the decision, I'll get past this. So now he begins his shrewd questioning. His incisive legal and military mind is at work asking Jesus questions. And in the body of the context of Jesus' answers, Pilate discovers that Jesus is a Galilean. Over in Galilee, there's a ruler. The, there was a convoluted system. I don't want to get all tangled up with history, but there's a convoluted system of governance in Judea. Rome ruled and they had their men there, but at the same time they knew that the Jews had a long history and they wanted to keep the Jewish people happy. So they kind of allowed the Jews to have their own king and a Roman leader at the same time. They had a Jewish king. Uh, actually, he wasn't Jewish. He was out of man. He was a descendant of Esau, but they, you know, he, he did have some Jewish background. His name was Herod, and he oversaw. He was a tetrarch. He ruled a fourth of the territory. He ruled over Galilee. Pilate was a Roman governor, and Pilate said, you know what? This is my answer. This is my solution. He had never gotten along with Herod. You know, they had a conflict of interest. They were both ruling basically in the same area, and they didn't get along, and, you know, Herod had his Jewish roots, and Pilate was all Roman. But Pilate said to himself, this is my solution. If Jesus is from Galilee, I'm going to ship him off. And so he sent him off to Herod. I'm talking to some of you today. You live in a culture. And can I just say this from the very outset? Jesus Christ is never going to be popular with the mainstream. He is always going to be a character that's going to be very polarizing. A lot of people have the idea that, you know, you just, somehow we should just manage to all get together. Do you know what Jesus said when he came to the earth? He said, do you think that I've come to bring peace? And by that he meant 
unity or uniformity? He said, no, I came to bring division. He didn't mean that he wanted division. It's just that his presence calls for a decision. And so now, you know, uh, there are people today in America that say, well, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, but like Jason said in the, in the drama, but I, I think there's some good in all religions. You know, I, I don't really think that any, any particular you know, any particular belief system is right or wrong, and that there's some good in everything, and if, you know, if, if I follow Jesus, then, you know, Christianity is right for me, and if you choose to follow Buddha, then Buddhism is right for you, and that's kind of the idea, and, and it's not just the idea in the world, it's the idea in a lot of, a lot of Christian churches. You know, I, I'm going I'm to just shift this decision off. I, I don't want to make the call. I'm going to put it on someone else. But you know, the thing about Jesus is the decision about him is intensely personal. You can't let somebody make this decision for you. He's so important that you, you can't say, well, my parents made the decision before I was born. No, it's too personal. Your parents will stand before God on their own. You'll stand before God on your own. And you say, well, you know, I, I checked the polls. In public opinion, you know, the public opinion polls say that the people that believe that Jesus is the only way to heaven, they're in the minority. The people that believe in a, in a more inclusive concept, they're in the majority. So I go with the majority. Well, is the majority going to be there when you die to control the environment? Are they going to be there to get you out of this life and in the life to come? Is God going to take a poll when you die to see... Who's going to make the call? Or somebody will say, well, you know, I mean, I hang with a group of people, and they think this way. We're at the office, and we discuss religion. This is kind of the, you know, this is kind of the consensus at the water cooler that this is the way things are. I, I don't want to make the call. I, I'm, going to, I'm going to pass it to my parents, or I'm going to pass it to my peers, or, or I'm going to pass it to the consensus of public opinion. And that's where Pilate was. I don't want to make this call. It's too hard, too challenging, too much at stake. I'm going to ship him off to Herod. But read what happened in Luke 23, verse 11. Then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him. That's Jesus. Dressing him in an elegant robe. And they sent him back to Pilate. There he was again. Pilate said, I'm going to get rid of this thing. It's too, too, hot, too much of a hot potato. And Jesus shows up again. Listen, you can't get rid of Jesus Christ. I mean, he is who he is. And you can try to put him off and say, well, I'm not going to make this call. You can't. He is who he is. He'll always come back. Well, at this point, Pilate now has a decision on his own. He understands now that ultimately he's going to make the call. Either Jesus will die on a cross or Jesus will be set free. And now it's up to Pilate. So Pilate brings Jesus back in. He begins to interrogate him because Pilate is looking for what? He is looking for some kind of slam dunk evidence to present to Jesus' detractors in the hopes that he'll get off the hook. Friend, could I tell you something? And this is just between, between us today. There are people who will hate Jesus regardless of the evidence. You know, you can give all the evidence in the world for Jesus Christ being who he is, and they'll still hate him. Pilate was under the misconception that somehow he could, with his skilled mind, with his razor-sharp intellect, Pilate was under the persuasion that somehow he could bring out of Jesus the answer that would be the easy, the easy solution to his problem. Let's read a little bit here in John 18. Pilate replied, you're a king then. You say that I'm a king, and you're right, Jesus said. I was born for that purpose. 
And I came to bring truth to the world. All who love the truth recognize that what I say is true. What is truth, Pilate asked. Then he went out to the people and told them, he's not guilty of any crime. Well, let's go back and look at what, what, what happened there. Jesus said, you know, I am a king. He had said to Pilate, my kingdom's not in this world, but I'm a king. And everybody that believes in the truth bears witness to me. At this point, Pilate's secularism just overcame him. And he snorted, what is truth? In effect, he was saying, there, there is no right or wrong. How can you know what's true? Now, there's a, there's a very important principle that all of us need to understand. Clarity of thought brings urgency. You know, the people who are heroes are just people who saw their duty, had it clearly established in their mind, and they were urgent because they saw the truth. Now, we've kind of lost that in America today. We have very little of that. And it's because of this. We have become, we have become pros at obfuscating the situation. Because, see, here's the thing. If you make things fuzzy enough, you can say, uh, who could make a decision in this environment? Well, there's some, there's some over here on this side. There's some, there's some evidence over here, and there's some evidence over here, and there's some evidence over here, and it's just too complicated. So, therefore, I'm just going to absent myself, and I'm not going to make any decision at all. It's just too fuzzy. And we've become very good at, at a, as a culture at fuzzing things up. We fuzz this, we fuzz that. We say, well, you know, it's too complicated. I can't figure it out. I can't sort it out. So therefore, I can't come up with an answer. And the Buddhists believe this, and the, you know, the followers of Islam believe this, and, and, and Christians say this, but it's just too complicated, and there are just too many religious thoughts. So therefore, I'm going to take the high ground and not believe anything. Pilate was saying, what is truth? Now, somebody could say, I'll do that with Jesus. But I don't believe you can. Because the things that Jesus said about himself call for you either to accept him as your Savior and Lord or for you to reject him as a nut or an evil man. You don't have any choice with Jesus. You can't just place him among the leaders of the world. Listen to some of the things that Jesus said. In John 14, verse 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father, that's God, except through me. Did you know Jesus said that? He did. He said, I'm it. Nobody can get to God except through Jesus. You know, how many of us watch Larry King? You know, Larry King gets a Christian on the broadcast, Billy Graham, Franklin Graham, you know, any, any religious leader, Joel Osteen. And he's going to ask them the question. Do, are, are you saying that you have to believe in Jesus to go to heaven? Every time Larry King gets somebody on, or, and a lot of interviews do this, but Larry King is just universal in this. You know, uh, do, are you saying that you have to be a follower of Jesus Christ to get to heaven? That's the right question to ask. But did you know that Jesus said, I am the way, the truth? You say, Mark, I, I think that's too exclusivist. Well, that's not really the issue. The issue is, what are you going to say about Jesus? You know, you can't throw up your hands and say, what is truth is too complicated, I can't make, up, make a decision. I, I, I'm bringing you to the place where you have to make a call about Jesus. Pro or con. Because he said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. And nobody comes to the Father but by me. You say, well, Mark, I don't think that's fair. I mean, after all, there are a lot of people who believe a lot of things. Well, the Bible says 
Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. In fact, we should marvel that there's one way. You know, you think about what that one way cost. We've been singing about it today. I mean, I, I just was overwhelmed. I woke up in the middle of the night one week and it just overwhelmed with the crucifixion. How that a man would lie on a cross and allow nails to be driven into his hands and his feet? That's what it took to make one way. And for one thing, you say, well, there are all these religions. What is a religion anyway? It's not an entity. They're not entities. It's not like they have some sort of stature or relevance just because somebody calls it a belief system about a higher power. What is truth? That's Pilate's question. What's the truth? And all I'm saying is Jesus, Jesus backs us, and, and, and I hope you understand what I'm saying. Jesus backs us into a corner about him. He just doesn't allow us to waffle. He doesn't allow us to be politically correct. Because he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. In John 8, verse 24, Jesus said, This is why I said you will die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am who I say I am, you will die in your sins. Now, I don't have the, I don't have the luxury of telling you anything you believe is okay because Jesus said unless you believe that he is who he says he is that we will die still holding on to our sins so now here's the deal with Jesus you have to make a call C.S. Lewis had it right he's either a liar and you can't follow a liar he is a crazy man because if he thinks he's the only way to heaven and he's not He's like the guy in the institution who thinks he's Napoleon. You know? So you know, either he's a liar or he's a nut or he's the Son of God. Those are your choices. And you either embrace him as who he is or you've got to call him a liar. Now, all I'm saying is, hey, look, at the end of the day, you make the call. I mean, you're like, you're, you and I are like Pilate. We're, we're, we're sitting here. We're, we're going to make the call. But all I'm saying is don't obfuscate it. Don't, don't make it real fuzzy and say, well, you know, a lot of people believe a lot of different things. This is what Jesus said. He's either a nut, he's a liar, an evil man, or he is the Son of God. Now, here's the deal. He came with a whole lot of evidence that he was who he says he was. I mean, nobody else made blind people see. Nobody else made lame people walk. Nobody else made deaf people hear. You say, well, Mark, that's all a bunch of stuff that was written down by, but you know what? It was written down by eyewitnesses who were in that century who corroborated what he said. And if he was a liar, they'd have called him on it. Now, here's the deal. I, I got, I, I'm going to take a few extra minutes. This is okay. This morning, I'm going to take a few extra minutes because we got something going on culturally right now in America that's a real issue. We have a book called The Da Vinci Code. And this last week, the National Geographic paid, I think, a million dollars for the so-called gospel of Judas. Now, here's a couple things that you need to watch for, okay? Just want to throw some stuff out for you to understand. They're going to talk a whole lot about all the gospels, the, the stories of Jesus that were floating around in the second century. There's a reason why they focus on the second century. That is that in the first century, there were only Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they were recognized by the eyewitnesses who were there. And the church recognized these gospels. But at the end of the first century, there was a group of people called Gnostics. They had come from pagan outside, and they infiltrated the church. The word Gnostics comes from the Greek word gnosis, G-N-O-S-I-S, which means wisdom or knowledge. And these were people that, you know, they were kind of like the secret society people that said, you know what, if you belong to us, then you believe this stuff of higher learning. And, and what they said was, you know, the human body is, is meaningless. It's the spirit that matters. And, and they were, and John deals with them in the, in the first epistle of John. There was a lot of dealing in the Bible with the Gnostics. 
But in the second century, their movement kind of proliferated, and they started writing these peripheral stories about Jesus. They were never accepted by the church. Nutty stuff. Like the Gospel of Judas wasn't written by Judas. He'd hung himself and broke open on the rocks a long time before somebody wrote this story. But the Gnostics believed a couple of things. There were two different schools of Gnosticism. One school said the body is irrelevant, it's inherently evil, and they lived a very Spartan life of self-denial. There was the other school of Gnostics that said, since the body doesn't matter, you can do anything you want to do in the body, you can commit adultery, you can go to orgies, it doesn't matter because the body's going back to the dust. So you can understand, when you, when you flip on the news and you hear this story about the gospel of Judas, how that Jesus told Judas, I really want you to betray me because i got to get rid of this body, that was a Gnostic gospel. And surely there was some of it floating around in the second century. And that's what's behind the Da Vinci Code. And like I told you in the first sermon, any first-year any, any first church history student could debunk it real easily. It's not difficult. But the challenge that you and I are going to face is we're going to live in a culture where this is going to proliferate because of the movie. And here's the principle. I'm going to take just a few extra moments, and I promise I'll get back to the message. But some of you remember the Oliver Stone movie, JFK, that it was in the late 90s. And it was, it was based on, and, and, and I, I remember the Kennedy conspiracy, and I'm a real, you know, I read all the conspiracy theories and all that stuff. It was based on the stupidest, nuttiest conspiracy. Even other conspiracy theorists regard the idea that Jim Garrison, the district attorney of New Orleans, had the right idea. But Oliver Stone told the story from that perspective, and he interwove actual footage of the Kennedy assassination in a dramatic fictional presentation. And it made it very powerful. Historians have found over 85 serious historical lies that that movie tells. But it gained great acceptance because it was presented in a fictional historical context. And that's what you and I are going to cope with in the next, in the next few months. There's an almost concerted effort at this point to say that the Bible is not true. But guys, I want to tell you, you've got to make a call. You have to ask yourself, what is truth? And you can't just back away and say, well, it's too complicated. It's too complex. What is truth? How can I know? All I'm saying, and I said this to you in the first sermon, whatever you believe, sell out for it because you'll get the ramifications of your choice. And it's so very vital. There's a name I'm going to throw out, and probably most of you have never heard of the name. But he was a very important man in the 19th century in America. His name was Lou Wallace. Lou Wallace was a military genius. As a young man, he became a general. He was promoted. He was very successful in various military campaigns in the Civil War. He was, uh, he, he was the general who protected Washington, D.C., saved Washington, D.C. from the Confederacy. After the war, he served as the military judge for the, in the military trial for the Lincoln assassins. But he was an avowed atheist. His best friend was Robert Ingersoll, now, again, that name might not be familiar to you, but for those of you who know history, Robert Ingersoll was the most noted atheist in America in the 19th century. And Ingersoll went to General Wallace. At this time, General Wallace had been appointed to be military governor of New Mexico, the New Mexico Territory. And Robert Ingersoll, he was a guy that would have these big crowds. You know, he would, he would hold up his stopwatch and he'd say, I give God 10 minutes to strike me dead. And then when God didn't strike him dead, he would say, well, there is no God, you know. Ingersoll went to Lew Wallace, and he said, General, you've got the intellect and the writing skills to do something 
that I don't have. And he said, I want to I put a challenge before you. And he said, I'd like for you to do something. He said, you need to write a book on the history of Christianity and all its flaws and all its fallacies and all its hyperbole and write the book that could forever end Christianity. So Lou Wallace set out to do that. This atheist, on the advice of his friend Bob Ingersoll, he set out to write the book that would forever debunk Christianity. But he was a serious historian. He had written a couple of other histories of, of very important time frames. And so he, he, he went after the story of Jesus with all of the skill of a historical writer with integrity. He got four chapters into his book and something happened. I want to read this to you. Several years were spent in this work. I had written nearly four chapters when it became clear to me that Jesus Christ was just as real a personality as Socrates, Plato, or Caesar. The conviction became a certainty. I knew that Jesus Christ had lived because of the facts connected with that period in which he lived. Now I was in an uncomfortable position. I had begun to write a book to prove that Jesus Christ had never lived on earth. Now I was face to face with the fact that he was just as historic a personage as Julius Caesar, Mark Anthony, Virgil, Dante, and a host of other men who had lived in olden days. I asked myself candidly if he was a real person, and there was no doubt that he was, was he not then also the Son of God and the Savior of the world? Gradually the consciousness grew that since Jesus was a real person, he was the one he claimed to be. I fell on my knees to pray for the first time in my life, and I asked God to reveal himself to me, to forgive my sins, and help me to become a follower of Christ. Toward morning, the light broke into my soul. I went into my bedroom, woke my wife, and I told her that I'd received Jesus Christ as my Lord and my Savior. Oh, by the way, he did go on to write that book, and we know it has been her. Yeah, like General Wallace. You have to make the choice. You can't just say it's too fuzzy. I can't, I can't choose. Well, I got to hurry. Here's the third thing. When, when Pilate realized that that wasn't going to work, in John 19, verse 10, he said, You won't talk to me? Pilate demanded. Don't you realize that I have the power to release you or to crucify you? Then Jesus said, You would have no power over me at all unless it were given to you from above. Okay, I want to give you a warning about the next few minutes of the sermon. What I'm about to say is very politically incorrect. Say, Mark, I thought you were already there this morning. Well, just wait. Okay. Oh, this is really politically incorrect. But it's true. When we begin to talk about the God of the Bible, like Jesus said, I'm the only way, the truth, and the life, it is amazing to me how that the average American begins to advance a concept. And it goes something like this. Well, I, I just don't believe that God would do such a thing. Or I can't see how a loving God would do X, Y, or Z. Or my God wouldn't do that. It's the same thing Pilate said. When Jesus wouldn't give him the answers that he wanted, Pilate said, don't you understand that I've got power over you? I'm the one making the call. I'm the one making the decision. It's up to me. And that's when Jesus said, you don't have any power at all. Now, I'm going to talk to some of you right now, and you just say, well, hey, I, I don't 
I don't, I'm not going to believe the Bible because it, I just can't believe God would, would do such a thing. Friend, could I tell you, and I mean this in all love, you're not in control. Five seconds after you die, you won't have any control at all over where you go. Public opinion will have no control at all. Consensus at the university will mean absolutely diddly. All the control will be in the hands of a sovereign God. And whether you and I can understand it or not, whether or not it fits our sense of justice or morality, is completely and totally irrelevant. You know, I I hate to appeal to a secular biographer, but you remember Minority Report that came out a few years ago? There was the movie in 2002. Philip Dick, who wrote the book, he said this, and this is really powerful. This, if, if, if Americans need to hear one thing, it's this. He said, reality is that which, when you stop believing in it, doesn't go away. And that's how it is with Jesus. You can say, I don't believe it, but it won't change it. You can say, I don't believe that Jesus is the only way, but if he is, it won't, make, it won't change anything. You can say, I don't believe that there is such a place called heaven, but if heaven exists, it won't go away. You can say, I don't believe that there is a place called hell, but if there is a place called hell, then it won't go away. Remember this again. Reality is that which, when you stop believing in it, doesn't go away. Pilate said to Jesus, I'm in control here. Don't you understand? I'm the boss. I'm the judge. Jesus said, you don't have any power at all. Your power to choose was given by God. And you and I are accountable for our choice. Okay, so we get to the fourth thing, and I know my time is gone this morning, but uh, Pilate at this point realizes that it's over. Because Jesus is not giving him that diamond, that gem, that defense that's going to somehow overcome the Jewish people and their desire to see Jesus kill the Jewish leaders. And so finally, Pilate hits on this one. In Matthew 27, verse 24, Pilate saw that he wasn't getting anywhere and that a riot was developing. So he sent for a bowl of water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this man. The responsibility is yours. And all the people yelled back, we will take responsibility for his death, we and our children. So Pilate released Barabbas to them. He ordered Jesus flogged with a lead-tipped whip and then turned him over to the Roman soldiers to crucify him. Pilate said, okay, I made my decision. My decision is no decision. I I made my choice. My choice is I choose not to choose. Bring me a bowl of water. There in the presence of all the people, Pilate dipped his hands into the water, and he washed them, and he said, it's not going to be me that makes the call. But did you hear at the end of the story that when it was really all said and done, Pilate's no decision became a no decision. Pilate turned him over to be crucified. I could be talking to somebody here today and you say, Mark, you've talked to me about Jesus and who he is and you said he's so big that I can't ignore him, but I just am not going to pick. I'm not going to choose. I'm not going to make a decision. Friend, could I tell you that your no decision about Jesus is a no decision? Jesus is a yes or no proposition. 
He's either who he is, and you embrace him as your Lord, or you reject him and you say, I do not want this man. That's it. It's either yes or no. Pilate's an interesting character to me. I've been preaching since I was 16, and I guess I've preached a sermon about Pilate probably most of the years of my ministry. He's a strange man. I guess what he said at the end of the day was that this man, Jesus, was just not important enough to risk what he would risk if he did the right thing. I mean, he knew Jesus was innocent. He said he knew Jesus was innocent. He washed his hands and said, I am not going to have anything to do with making this call. But at the end of the day, Pilate said to himself, why should an irrelevant, itinerant Jewish teacher cause me so much grief? Forget about it. I'm talking to somebody here today, and you got your job, and you got your home, and you got your friends, and you got your social acquaintances, and you got, you got your classes at the university, and, and you're saying to yourself, I know Mark's saying all this, but it can't be all that important because, after all, I'm going to go out and live in the real world. Jesus is just not important enough to me to make this decision. That's what Pilate said. There is the ultimate irony to this whole story. At the end of the day, it wasn't Jesus on trial. It was Pilate. Pilate was on trial. He never saw that. He never saw it coming. But it was Pilate on trial. Jesus was headed for the cross all along. He was going to walk out of the grave under his own power. He, he's sitting at the right hand of God. He is who he is. Well, it is Pilate's who's, Pilate whose destiny was forever shaped by that moment. Now, can I tell you this today? You may have come here today and you've said, I am going to be open to the claims of Jesus Christ, and I'm going to put him on trial. Well, it's okay if you want to explore and, and study and evaluate what the Bible says about Jesus and look at historical facts and all that. That's great. I, I, I ask you to do that. One of the things that, you know, I'll just tell, tell you this. Here at Messiah, we never have any problem with any question. Please ask us. You know, we want a seat at the table. We want you to ask questions. It's not like at the university where if you intimate that maybe we didn't evolve, it's we're going to slap you on the wrist for that. Intelligent people don't think that way. No, we invite the questions. But at the end of the day, it isn't Jesus on trial. It's us. It's you and me. The gospel is very simple. God loved the world that he gave his only son to die in our place, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. When I was eight years old on the playground of my school, I'd been over the water fountain to get a drink, and I remembered that my pastor had preached that if you would invite Jesus Christ into your life, he would forgive your sins and write your name in heaven. In a simple act of an eight-year-old boy, I've been over the water fountain and prayed to ask Christ into my life, and my life has never been the same. I want to offer you the opportunity to do that right now. Would you bow your heads with me, please? If you've never received Christ, you can do that as we, as we pray together. Just pray with me. The Bible says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, so that's what I'm asking you to do with me. Just call on him. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, I believe you died in my place. I believe you are 
who you say you are. Come into my life. Wash me from my sin and save me. I trust you in Jesus' name.